Welcome back to the Prairie Pod. We are doing episode three today called, um, where can I get that prairie seed? <laughs> so this is another part of our restoration series where we're going to talk about seed sourcing. And I'm here with one of my favorite people of all time, Jessica Peterson. Hey, Jess. Hi, Megan. How are you today? I'm really well. Really well? I, You know, people don't say really well anymore. Like, people just say, like, good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm fine. I'm, really, I'm good. I'm really doing well. I've been I've been out in the prairies and getting some sun. It feels great. You've had your SPF 50 on, though. Right, of course. I mean, protection. Have to be safe. You gotta be safe. And my tick gaiters. And your tick gaiters. And your knee-high boots. You know what works the best for ticks, I find, like, to prevent them? I have these knee-high rubber boots, and I think they are the best thing on the planet. Because those ticks, I mean, usually they're on the vegetation, and they just can't seem to get a grip, like a hold on that rubber. I love it. Have you ever watched the ticks when they're on the grass before they get on you? Have you ever watched them when they put their little legs out there? They just stand there waiting. (laughs) Jess is miming being a tick right now. Right. I wish you could see it. With with baited anticipation of anything... (laughs) walking by and then they you do and they just launch themselves do you know what the number one question that i probably get asked every single year what good is a tick what good (laughs) people always ask me that i'm like well it's population control right it's a biological control Mm. a disease vector like they're part of the ecosystem well the the diseases might be part of population (laughs) control but Ticks provide a lot of food for other animals. That's true. They're excellent food. Possums. This is totally off topic. (laughs) Possums. Did you know that possums can (laughs) reduce tick populations? They, I don't know if they seek them out or if they just are really good at eating lots of things, but possums reduce the tick population. Did you read this somewhere? Of course I read this somewhere. <laughs> Did you read it at a, on a legitimate site? I don't know. No, I, I do believe that this is a legitimate source of information. I want to You know, know me and my fact checking. I know. Jess is like a scientist to the max, very, very, very likes lit reviews, likes to make sure that everything is backed up by research. But I want to know, do the possums pick out certain kinds of ticks like do they like dog-legged ticks because they're you know okay well speaking of (laughs) fact checking this seed sourcing topic that we're going to be talking about today today's podcast topic is seed sourcing for prairie restoration prairie reconstructions we're going to talk about genetic diversity we're going to talk about how to get seed, where to get seed, different ways you can get prairie seed, and then give some guidelines about, you know, h- how to collect seed to best maximize the genetic diversity. So I wrote a fact sheet about seed sourcing for resilient uh, reconstructed prairies, and that was the impetus of writing this, was to, to just get the information out there, the, the facts behind all all the things we think about with seed sourcing. Jess, what do you mean by resilient? Resilient to me means, we talk about that a lot on the podcast, resiliency. Um, resilient to me means um, a prairie that is able to withstand change. So able to withstand drought, flooding, fire, climate change, anything that comes at it, it's just like, it's like a ninja. It's like a prairie ninja. (laughs) It's got lots of different tools to withstand any (laughs) 
kind of stress, right? No, that's perfect. And when our prairies are healthy, just like when people are healthy, right. they're better able to withstand these stressors, right? I mean, it just makes sense. Like if you ate nothing but cheeseburgers every single day, my gosh, you would have good meals. Not <laughs> but, very resilient. But you wouldn't be very resilient because you're not getting the, it's not a pyramid anymore. What is it? It's the food web. Or I think it's a plate. I it's, think a it's plate. a plate. Oh, yeah. yeah. We see, now you know how old we are. We're, we're of the days of the food pyramid. No pyramid anymore. There's no pyramid. Whatever. You need to have everything in balance so that it's healthy. Right. And that goes for genetics, too. That goes for plant genetics. We need to have a wide variety of genetic diversity so that those specific genes, some genes may be more resilient than others. So, well, and so we there's not inbreeding, but you're going to well, get there. True. Yeah, that's, we're getting ahead of we're, ourselves. Oh, I know. We got to just jump right in here. So the first thing we want to talk about today is where to get the seed. There's lots of different ways you can get seed for prairies. We were just talking to one of our managers here in Region 4 about how he gets his seed and kind of the evolution of seed sourcing. And today, there's lots of ways you can get seed, and, and all these ways have pluses and minuses. So one way that a lot of folks um, collect seed is through some sort of mechanical harvest, right? So they go out there with some sort of tractor machine um, and combine or, or flail back this um, seed into a machine. So lots of pluses and minuses. There's drawbacks to this method because you're getting a lot of, what is this word you use, Megan? I said chaff earlier. You get a lot of chaff. Chaff. So you, you've right. heard that phrase like separating the wheat from the chaff. Right. Basically all they're saying is the chaff is like everything that you don't want. It's the non-seed items. So when you do any kind of mechanical harvest, this works very similar to an agricultural combine. Actually, that's what it's modeled off of as agricultural combines. So we're just using it in a different sense to combine or harvest seed mechanically from prairies. And you're cutting essentially the top of that seed head off, which means you're getting the seed, but you're also getting the stem, maybe some leaves, maybe some other debris or dust that's on there. And that other debris and dust and the leaves and the stem, that's the chaff. Right. So a couple of the drawbacks to this method is you're only getting a single um, you're only getting a single uh, cut in time, right? So whenever you go through that um, that prairie with your your machine, your mechanical harvester, that's when your whatever seeds available at that time is what you're going to be harvesting. So you may be it's just capturing a single point in time. You may be missing some things that would have been ready to harvest seed that was ready to harvest before or after. So you're limiting yourself to whatever's Because it's already ready. dropped. And we tend to harvest like in the mid-season, mid, mid like July, August-ish, which means you're getting a lot of the mid-season to late-blooming plants. Right. Yeah, I think I think most managers are harvesting later. Oh, yeah, you're right. It is even later. Like I'm thinking a hand September. harvest. September. Right. Yeah. So... So these mechanical harvesters are going through and they're, they, they're probably capturing more later season stuff. You also are going to get things you don't want, species you don't want, brome, whatever non-native species are in there. Um, so thistle, right. Thistle. So some of the other issues with um, mechanical harvesters, some of the drawbacks is you, gotta, you have to have a lot of storage space um, to, to be able to put the seed out, to dry it. You may 
need to do some seed cleaning, some seed testing, um, but you get a large volume of seed, um, and and that's a good thing. It's good to have a lot of seed. So another way we can get seed is to purchase seed from a vendor. So how would we go about purchasing seed from a vendor, Megan? Well, we're really lucky in the state of Minnesota, and I'm not saying this just you know to say it. I I'm not from around here, so I can so I can say things like we're really lucky in Minnesota. And even if you're from here, you can say that too. It is like we live in this big, beautiful, awesome state, and we have amazing native seed companies who know what they're doing and are well versed in prairie restoration. So luckily, we have options. And when you have options, that means you know you don't have monopolies and you don't just have to order from the same person. And it means that you get more of a fair price. So in order to purchase from a seed vendor. You first want to find out that they're a reputable, experienced in restoration person in natives. So you can do that just like you would check anybody's references, ask for recommendations, see if they have a legit website. Um, I can't list the people because we're the government and so we can't just tell you who to go from. But a, a quick Google search will get of native seed companies, Minnesota, will get you some of the biggest ones. So there are commercial vendors. And then they're, and what that means is they tend to supply large quantities of seed. They might have a minimum dollar amount. They uh, might have a minimum uh, like weight amount, like a minimum size that they'll do. And then usually it's a dollar amount, like a minimum seed order of $100 or something like that for our commercial vendors. Then there are others who tend to focus more on smaller areas, home gardens, individualized plants, uh, plugs, seeds. You can order both from a seed vendor. And so the way you go about doing that is you want to build your seed mix, which is a podcast later on where we'll talk about how you put your seed mix together. You get the number of species that you want, the seeds per square foot that you want of each one, and how many ounces per acre of each one you're going to plant. That's typically how we do it. And then you just solicit bids usually from those different vendors. And sometimes they have what you want and sometimes they don't. And we, as the state, we have to specify where is that seed coming from. And then we try to get seed that is as close to our restoration site as possible. So they'll usually on that quote that they give us back or that bid, they'll have like the lot number of for each species where they're getting that seed from. Yeah, and that tells us where it's from, where it's coming from, where it originally came from. Yes. But oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes it's grown in a production plot on a, a farm, essentially. A seed prairie farm, prairie seed farm. Prairie seed farm? Yeah, it might be harvested and <laughs> we're, we're struggling. might be harvested, say, in Brown County, and then they take it back to their production plant, which may be somewhere else, say, in northern Minnesota, and they grow that seed out so that way it's easier to harvest. Easier to harvest from a plot where it's a single species in it, obviously, than it is when it's mixed prairie dynamic, which is a lot of what, um, when the DNR harvest seed or fish and wildlife, we're working in mixed prairies, not in these plots. And so we have a lot of different kinds of seeds grouped together, which creates some unique challenges in terms of trying to figure out how you're going to supplement that and build a seed mix. Right. So that's what all these different methods are about, in my mind, is supplementing, especially this last one of hand harvesting. So say you've, you know, you've gone out with your mechanical harvester and you've you've got some some really good stuff in there that you kind of know about from you know knowing the site, maybe testing the seed, and then 
you perhaps you supplement that with some purchased seed from a seed vendor, then you still have some gaps in in maybe what you want um, to fulfill some of the requirements to um, fill the different guilds or or what have you. And so maybe you want to go out and you want to hand harvest. And I really like hand harvesting seed. I like going out there. You get to see so much while you're doing it. You see crazy <laughs> stuff. It's it's awesome. And and so some of these things that people are really interested in hand harvesting right now, um, as we as we kind of evolve our techniques to collect seed and to plant prairies, are these early season forbs. Um, so things like flocks and prairie smoke and pasque flower. Um, people are really get kind of getting excited about going out there and collecting these seeds. Um, so and why are those? Wait, back well, up. So those ones you said are ones, are they just like super cool? I mean, they are, but they there's often, a particular reason why. Right. They often aren't available um, from seed vendors necessarily yet. Um, they're in large quantities. In large quantities. Yeah. Um, they're missing from our, from our reconstructions because of that. And, and when, like we said earlier, with the early with the um, mechanical harvester, if they're going out later in the season, they're not capturing those species because the seeds would have fallen and dropped. Because they're early bloomers. They're early bloomers. Oh, I didn't say that ever. I know. I was helping you out there. Yeah, but yeah they're early bloomers. Early and so bloomers. they're really, really important when you think about getting something in there that can compete with brome in the prairie, getting something in there for our, our early emerging pollinators, for example. Right. Like, flower blooms when the snow is still on the ground. Yes, it's one of the very first blooming species out there. It's the coolest thing ever. Like, you yeah. just see this little patch of yellow, which is the center of the flower. It's like a typical ray disc kind of flower. And you, like a sun, that's what I mean, a structure is like a sun. Mm-hmm. And you go, <laughs> you're like, what is this patch of yellow on top of the snow? Mm-hmm. And it's like a little flower. They're blooming. They're beautiful. And their seeds are so soft and fuzzy. Have you have you seen <laughs> the seeds? I've never touched a flower seed. We'll put a picture of the seed on the website of the seed head. It's beautiful. It's, it in and of itself is almost like a flower. The other thing I find so interesting from a biological standpoint, and I don't know if anybody's looked at this, this is totally crazy off the wall of speculation. Is this is like your possum thing? From kind of, okay. yeah. So, um, pasque flower and uh, prairie smoke, unrelated species, but their seed head, and then they bloom about the same time, and their seed head is so similar. It's such a similar morphology. Isn't it kind of like octopus-like? Like, Like, that's how I think of it. That it's this fuzzy, and it has these, like, tendrils. It's almost like some crazy hair. Yeah, it's got, like, crazy hair. It's like a pod Mm -hmm. with crazy hair, and then it's got, like, these tendrils. I mean, the tendrils are the remains of the flower, but... yeah. But still, the way yeah. it looks is kind of like yeah. a sea creature. Yeah, a little bit. They're just, it's it's so much fun. It's almost I maybe it's an addicting behavior. This uh, seed collection because it's one of those things when you go home at night, <laughs> you close your eyes, you still see yourself like looking for the seeds, because it, it's like a big Easter egg hunt almost. So you go out there and you're trying to find these very specific seeds. So it's a lot of fun. You also need a lot of really cool equipment. Or it can you can include a lot of really cool equipment that's really basic stuff. Cool equipment like a like a hair comb. Like a hair comb. So <laughs> there's this great video from the Tallgrass Prairie Center on YouTube that we'll uh, link to on the website, and it ha- it goes through a lot of different really um, creative things you can use that you have around your house to collect seed. 
So you need something to um, kind of get the seed from the chaff oftentimes because if you're going to the process of hand collecting you don't want to hand collect you don't want to collect a, a bunch of extra material you might as well get right to the seed source if you can if you can so they use the um, the the comb to kind of pull it through the plant to to rip the seed from the rest of the plant it's cool you'll have to and look at that it that works really well for certain things right. like little blue stems right. things that tend to separate well my favorite part of that video is when he straight up wears the milk jug yeah. belt yeah so he's got milk jugs where the tops are cut off and they're connected on a bungee cord and he's got them strapped to his to his pants it's great <laughs> it's perfect because sometimes you're perfect. out there and you're collecting more than one species and you don't want to get them mixed up and so that's a great way you always want to make sure you're not collecting into something that's going to add moisture like the plastic jugs are okay because it's open but um, ultimately, these seeds are going to want to go in something where they're able to dry, you know, a paper bag or, or something something similar. Or a cotton sack, something that breathes and won't have moisture stuck to it. Right. So, you know, these are other things you need to consider, the equipment, um, but most of that stuff you're going to have around the house. Another thing that I've heard um, folks use, I've never used it myself, is a, a leaf vac. So you're sucking seed out, uh, the dicanthelium. I've I've heard from like you're reversing our... a leaf blower basically mm -hmm. so yeah. it's kind of like shop back when you reverse the shop back yeah huh. yeah so you can go out there and and suck up the panic grass um seeds you know when there's a, a big carpet of it really easily it's pretty <laughs> cool I know I just picture it like what, what are those uh Dean Hart employees out there to leaf blow in the prairie what, <laughs> what are they doing out there today <laughs> Plus, you look real cool when you're doing all this stuff. I think it's a great way to get creative, though. I, I think it's fun. Hey, everyday materials make the best seed collection items. Right. Molly here in our office, she has a ton of these gadgets that she's made because she does a lot of seed collecting for parks. And she's got just an awesome array of milk jug belts and other fancy equipment that you, too, can have. So um, that's, that's kind of wrapping up where we get the seed. And then we can move on to think about plant genetics a little bit. Just dabble in it. We're not going to get too deep here. It's a it's a deep subject. It can be. And I'm not a geneticist. I don't play one on TV. Even I, I just... I'm not a geneticist either. Although I did get an A in that back in school. I really liked when you paired genes up and you found out, like which one was recessive and which one was dominant and were you going to get a yellow lab or a brown lab or a black lab <laughs> yeah unfortunately it's not that easy in real life i know right? but you know in class i really yeah, excelled at it so um there's kind of two schools of thought um about plant genetics as far as it relates to um seed for restorations and that this isn't specific necessarily just to prairies it's about any kind of restoring any kind of community and that's the mix or match so we'll go through each of these a little bit in more detail um, it's basically referring to whether or not you you're mixing seed from a lot of different sources or you're matching the seed to kind of the local environment right so so the matching theory um is sometimes called the home site advantage which i kind of like, like it yeah, yeah. i kind of like that i got home site advantage right so you're trying to get the most local seed you possibly can very local seed you know 20 30 miles maximum um 
there's some issues with this. And this this has been kind of the prevailing thought, right? In especially in prairie restoration. Um, this has been for a long time the prevailing thought. However, it could cause inbreeding depression. We know we've got habitat fragmentation happening um, where species aren't moving as far, perhaps, as they were historically. Part of the problem with kind of solving this issue of whether or not mixing or matching is better is that we don't have a lot of information. You know, just like in a lot of things in restoration ecology, it's a very new field and we don't, we have to go with what we have. Well, and you said that this is like the prevailing thought, but I, I mean, back at the inception or the dawn mm. of restoration, you know, if you take it back to the dawn of restoration, probably in the 70s, you know, when it's really kicking off the science, like, we used to move seed all over the place. Like, we right. took it from Texas, Nebraska, and a lot of our Midwestern prairies, we would augment with this seed that was from very far away because that's what was available at the time. And it's only, you know, I would say, I don't know, last 10, 15 years that we thought, okay, there's something to having seed that is closer and more local because it's no different than dropping a polar bear in the middle of St. Paul. Is he going to do a good job living? You know, when I teach kids or like you go in and teach ecology to kids in a fifth grade class, they're like, yeah, he'll eat the people. Like they just yell crazy stuff at you. And you're like, no, that's not what polar bears eat normally. Like, <laughs> Plus, then you start talking to them about the climate and where does it live and would it, would it live in somebody's house? And then they start to get it. Like, okay, so that's not native for it. It would thrive much better in its natural environment. So that's the same kind of idea with this home site advantage. Right, it is. And, and you're right. It, in the past, we, we used cultivars, typically, yes. from far away. And that's a whole other topic. I know. Cultivars. So Oof, Don't get me started yeah, on we're cultivars. Not, we're not going to touch that today, because I think we've, for the most part, moved beyond thinking about cultivars. You know, we're, we're trying to look at improving, yeah, if, <laughs> increasing if you, our diversity. If you haven't, the sum of that, because we won't go down the rabbit hole, but the sum of that is don't use a cultivar. Use the actual right. species. So cultivars are—it's still the same species, but they've been um, artificially selected for plants that are very vigorous. Traits. Which, traits right. that make them more vigorous. It could be right. flower size or color, or sometimes they're genetically modified to give them a different color. Like there's a lot of columbine on the market that is not red. Yeah, like it's it's a different. They typically have a rapid growth rate. We don't want that. We want them to behave as normally as possible. Yeah. So, so one of the the potential problems with um, using this matching um, theory is that it could cause inbreeding depression. So, if you're only choosing from you know plants or seed from very local populations, it could have low genetic diversity and fitness due to um, essentially crossing of related individuals. So that's inbreeding depression. So we don't want that because that doesn't help us with our resilience at all. Um, so we don't know that necessarily, right? We don't, we don't have, we haven't tested the genetics of every single species in the prairie and the population genetics to know whether or not they might suffer from inbreeding depression. And every species is going to be different too, in terms yeah. of how far 
they can be moved and still maintain good genetic variability or yeah. not. It's going to depend on a lot of factors, um, especially those factors related to how they're pollinated, how they how they grow, whether or not they grow clonally or you know germinate by seed. Um, a lot of different factors. There's not a recipe. Can't give you a recipe for which species you should move farther than others. We don't. We aren't there yet with the research. So um, it's also difficult using this matching um, approach to obtain sufficient volumes of seed for restoration and for the diversity that we want in our prairies. So if we're only choosing seed from for a restoration from the nearest remnant, that remnant may be highly degraded and not have the complete diversity that we might want to meet our goals of the restoration that we're planting. So, um, you know, just another reason that maybe this this um, the mixing approach might be a little bit better or just another potential problem with the matching. You know, if you've got a, a highly diverse prairie restoration or prairie, native remnant prairie next door, you know, maybe this is a good approach for the most part. But um, and there's also wait Central times, problem. right, for harvesting seed from a remnant. You don't want to just necessarily harvest every single year at the exact same time. Like, I know there's mixed research on this, but we right. do want to... We'll get to that. Okay, I'm gonna get to I that. just get so excited. Keep going. <laughs> okay, so so that's that's basically the, the basis for the matching. You know, um, th there are advantages to it, potentially. Um, especially, you don't, you don't want to have outcrossing um, problems outbreeding depression. So if you're um, moving seeds too far, you can have outbreeding depression. So that's um, part of the reason that the matching it might be a, a good thing. Um, so the mixing um, approach is where you mix populations and you kind of create or you can create seed sourcing zones. That's what they've done in Iowa. They have three seed sourcing zones where they mix seed from multiple populations to create these kind of certified zones. Um, another term that people talk about often with seed sourcing is local ecotype. And there's not a terribly good definition for this term. There's a lot of different definitions for it. So it's not, doesn't necessarily refer to a certain distance that you should move seed or that seed has been moved. Um, people use the term interchangeably, but in, in Iowa, they use this term local ecotype to refer to these seed sourcing zones. We don't have something similar here in Minnesota necessarily, I don't think. We, have, we haven't gotten there. We don't have zones where we mix seed like no. that. We have the, the DNR and Bowser, well, the state like has seed sourcing zones in terms of where we recommend how far you're going to go to source your seed from, but it's not the same system that Iowa has developed where they're actually mixing seed across areas. And we do source in southern Minnesota for a lot of our restorations we will source seed from Iowa because that northern seed zone in Iowa yeah. is very similar to our southern counties Jackson County you know those types of things like that's very close right so with this mixing of of populations there's a greater potential for seeds or individuals to self sort so if you have a wide variety of genetics then Individuals that are best suited to live in that environment will grow. Um, those that aren't, won't. And so you're getting um, potentially better establishment if you have seeds that are able to grow in that area, best able to grow in that area. Um, you also, you know, in contrast to the, to the matching, you might 
be able to achieve a higher diversity of, um, of an established prairie because more seed is available to you. Uh, it also facilitates outcrossing. So you're mixing seed from lots of different um, genetics and you're offsetting that inbreeding depression potential from just relying on local seed. Um, but it could cause outbreeding depression. It could cause um, a problem when distantly related plants cross and result in progeny that are not as fit. Um, so it, Why would that happen? Well, if their genetics just aren't compatible. Oh, okay. I got it. Yeah. So that's possible. If you move seed too far, um, you may have outbreeding depression. Well, what? and you can also, like we found when we were moving seed from Texas, you can have seeds do incredibly well and overtake your native communities. Right. Like, what is it, Nebraska 28 switchgrass or whatever. That well, that's the cultivar. cultivar. Yeah. yeah, that just, yeah, sure, it'll establish quick and it'll give you an instant prairie, but it's not what you want in terms of a diverse and resilient prairie. We don't want monocultures. Right. There's some, there's this question of how far is too far is really widely unknown, I, I, I think, from the literature um, there is ongoing research in Minnesota that is, is looking to ask this question. They're looking at a lot of um, morphological, phenological traits in plants through a reciprocal um, common garden experiment. So this is kind of the, um, the holy grail of uh, understanding how far we can move seed. So they took um, seed from populations in uh, different parts of the state and planted them reciprocally in all those other parts of the state and in a common garden, so in a, the same place, and they're measuring different traits. So when they bloom, how long they bloom, how big they are, how maybe how big their seeds are. I don't know what all they're measuring. This Lots is of like the things. old like nature yeah. versus nurture, yeah. basically, yeah. in yeah. plants. Yeah. To see how it all plays out. No, it makes sense. So, so that'll be cool. But there's so many species. Again, there's so many species in prairies, so many families in prairies that we can't know everything about every species. Um, That's why we have good rules of thumb. I mean, you have good right. rules of thumb that we're about to jump into for seed right. collecting guidelines. But we also, I just want to give a quick shout out to the seed sourcing map. If you're not familiar with this, there is a seed sourcing map. Uh, Bowser has one and DNR has one. We're working, hopefully, that we can get a merge and get one because it's just easier when we're all speaking with the same voice and we feel very similar about it like the the whole point of these maps is to they basically looked at ecological differences across the state so they looked at ecological sections and provinces like this is the prairie parkland province versus this is the um, eastern broadleaf forest and they tried to set zones within that that were reasonable for where somebody would get seed from and it goes in a sequence like if seed is not available directly adjacent or the next county then you can go move through the sequencing hey zoom out yeah just keep zooming out and then you as a land manager has the ability have the ability to decide how far you want to go but generally speaking we're talking about minnesota the seed sourcing map for all of that is restricted to um Minnesota and just a little bit over the border on each in each direction. We tend to not source seed from Canada and it's nothing against Canada. It's only because a lot of times when we get that seed, it's just labeled as Canada or Ontario. 
and it's difficult for us to know i mean it's huge it's difficult for us to know where exactly like is that close to my site or isn't it because if you're just talking about ontario that ontario is very large <laughs> like it could be coming from anywhere and then how close is it to me actually and that's why i said earlier we do, we tend to get quite a bit of seed down here from northern iowa because ecologically it's very similar to our southern minnesota yeah Grace. so um there are some general seed collecting guidelines that you can use when you're thinking about harvesting seed um, by hand, but also just thinking about, you know, buying from vendors as well as mechanically harvesting, just some general rules, general guidelines to follow. Um, you know, if you're out there with a machine or, or otherwise, collecting across the entire site. So making sure you're not focusing on just one hillside even though that might be easier, right? You don't have to walk up and down the hills. Um, collecting across an entire site. One of the rules of thumb that I really liked was harvest from bad sites in bad years. Which seems really weird. Because like, it's like if the prairie's having a bad year, then you go out and harvest, it just seems like, why would I do that? It does sound like Explain it to me, Jess. Explain it to me. Intuitive. Little... But it gets back to this whole resilience idea, right? Is that you want your planted prairie to be able to live in those bad years, right? right? Quote, bad years, droughts, floods, whatever. And so you want those hardy species that are still alive and producing seed. Those are the best ones. Yep, those individuals, they're those making individuals. it. So yeah. they've got good genetics for that. They're kind good of. genes. Yeah. They got good genes. Um, <laughs> hey, side oats. <laughs> I like your genes. <laughs> You also want to collect across time. So, you know, species are going to bloom. And even in, within a population, some individuals are going to bloom earlier. You know, a lot of them are going to bloom. You want to get the, the ends of the bell curve, basically. Right. Early, um, late. Yep. Collect across time. Collect across sites. So don't just focus on one population. And this is going to, again, this, this in and of itself is going to um, allow for some creativity so this is a good opportunity to um, get to know your neighbors, maybe partner up with other agencies. There's some really cool collaborations happening among, you know, TNC, Fish and Wildlife Service, DNR, other partners associated with the Prairie Plan to get together, collect seed, and share it. It's because you don't always have what you need, and maybe you have more than what you need of one thing, and... And so it's it's this great opportunity to share. And we're all in this together. That's what the prairie plan's about. We agree that prairie's important. We want to protect it, and we want to restore it and make the best prairies possible. And there's just, oh, the conservation community in Minnesota is amazing. Yep. I love it. So it's a good, this is a good way, partnering up with um, other organizations, maybe some neighboring landowners. It's another way to get people interested in prairie, too. Um, so... That's a good way to collect across sites, to mix um, a lot of seed from a lot of different places. And landowners are great about this. Like, I just, I don't know, I can't think of a single example of a landowner that I've spoken to and said, like, hey, would you mind if we collect? You know, they have normal questions, like, what do you mean you're going to collect and why and what for? But you end up having these really great conversations, just like Jess said, about prairie and how awesome it is and what they've got on their property and their excited and they're interested yeah and they people and often helpful. 
people often want to know what's out there, right? So while you're out there, you can make a list of the species that you're finding and and what you're doing, and then that's a benefit to to a private landowner as well. Landowners are why we have prairies in oh, yeah. Minnesota. Mm -hmm. So lots of different ways to collect seed. Um, so so these guidelines again are you know try to hit the ends of the the bell, right? Collect across an entire site, collect across time, across sites, harvest from the bad sites, the bad years, and finally, there's a lot of concern. I don't know about a lot of. There's some concern about over-harvesting from our remnants. So there is some work um, that we'll highlight here in a little bit, but the recommendation is to only collect every three to five years, especially for these short-lived um, non-clonal species. So some of these other species like uh, Canada anemone always comes to mind, or goldenrods if you're uh, some of the goldenrods. I don't think all species are clonal. Are, are clonal species. And so those are probably less um, likely to be harmed by um, collecting under short time frames. But some of the species, um, like prairie violets, were found in this study by Justin Meissen to um, actually improve their abundance, increase their abundance through seed collection. Huh. Just really interesting. That is interesting. Yeah. So it's like they got more vigorous in response to it, kind of like when you have an annual and you sort of snip, you know, the little buds off to trick the plant like it hasn't bloomed yet and then it puts out more flowers. I don't know what the mechanism is. I don't know that Justin necessarily hypothesized what the mechanism was. That's one potential mechanism. Maybe as you're collecting, you're also dropping some. Right? Oh, well, I do too. So you're like, you're, you're like a baby bison across <laughs> yeah. the prairie. Yeah. Everybody so, wants to be compared to a bison. I'm not sure what the mechanism was necessarily, but um, lots, of, lots of different choices there. So um, since we're speaking of that, we should probably science do the literature. <laughs> so... We're going to highlight a couple of things here um, today. One is this um, really great paper. Um, it's highly accessible to anybody um, to read. It's not a, not a very technical paper by Aaron Espland um, and others. Um, so some of the authors here are, are, are from Minnesota or in Minnesota. Um, and it's the title is Evolution of Plant Materials for Ecological Restoration, Insights from the Applied and Basic Literature. And that's where a lot of these guidelines that I referenced um, a little bit ago uh, came from. There's, um, this, isn't really, this isn't specific to prairies necessarily, that, talking about um, forests as well as prairies um, and, and other things too. So there's not, um, you know, it's not specific to prairies, but there's, they talk about six practices um, and a lot of these I just I just covered, but it's basically promoting gene flow through um, through your collection, and and not wanting to to decrease that genetic diversity that's out there to to ways we can increase it by collecting through time, multiple collections in space, um, et cetera. So we. We don't want to do any harm, right? We don't want First to do no harm, right? We don't want to do any harm, and it's hard to know if you're doing harm when we don't have the research to necessarily support it. Um, we might think we're doing no harm by only collecting very local seed, um, by by choosing this matching um, approach, but in the end, maybe maybe that is harm. But the good thing 
the the good news is is that a lot of different players are doing a lot of different things with regard to seed sourcing. There's mixing and matching. Right. Going on. <laughs> We're hedging right. our bets. We're hedging our bets. We're hedging our bets with our practices inherently. So, so you know, somebody's going to be the winner. <laughs> well, that's the best thing that you can but do. I don't know. It's yeah. like having managers make different choices and not everybody's making the same chocolate cake out there on the landscape. That's good. It's a good thing. That's a good thing yeah. because it means you're going to get different structures and different kinds of prairies and somebody is going to make the right choice right and i lots of people will make the right choice lots of people will and that that's kind of the cool thing about prairies is that you have an opportunity to be creative you don't you don't have to follow a recipe right you don't you you there's components that that need to be there there are pieces to the pie that have to be there sugar you need the sugar but you need the flour you need the eggs but maybe you want to add some vanilla maybe you want to add a little chili spice i don't know how you're making your cake but it's like you need those basic things and then all the extras that make that cake special are what changes the landscape and make that landscape special and unique and have different structure and just yeah, I like that. The 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 three thousand foot view, right, and is, you look is down. also diverse, right? That's how it should be, and that's so, cool. Yeah, yeah, diversity all around. So this second paper that I already referenced when talking about um, over harvesting is by Justin Meissen and others, and this work we was... have to call him Doctor Justin Meissen. Oh, that's now. true, Doctor Meissen. Yeah. So this um this was uh this work was done here in Minnesota, and the title is Risks of Over Harvesting Seed from Native grass prairies and again his recommendation or the, the multiple authors here their recommendation was um, to wild harvest so that's referring to you know harvesting these remnants every three to five years is probably compatible with maintaining um, populations of most species in the prairie um, especially those um, that are short-lived non-clonal species should be we should be really careful most careful with those species to ensure that they're um, that we're maintaining healthy populations post-harvest, hand-harvest, typically hand-harvest. And then um, the kind of the third thing I'd like to reference is there's a lot of really great resources on the Tallgrass Prairie Center website, including the YouTube that we talked about earlier. But there's also a really great... Um, Jess, you got to say the YouTube where they show the milk jug belt <laughs> for yes. how to do your seed harvest. <laughs> that is what is... got to watch that video. It's like 14 minutes long. I know what I'm going to get you for your birthday. Will you please get... Oh my gosh! Are you going to get me a milk jug belt? I am. I just threw my hands in the air. I got so excited. <laughs> Can it, I, I want five milk jugs. On it. Okay, five. Because, okay. you know, this is customizable. Center, two sides. Yeah, exactly. Okay. You, I can do that. Yeah, maybe need, color code. I, I the, need five on there. Yeah. Uh, so I can put different seeds in. Okay. It's going to be great. It's awesome. <laughs> what am I going to get you for your birthday? <laughs> I tell you what, Comb. I'm going to get you one of those combs. <laughs> so, so the other cool thing on the on the Tallgrass Prairie Center website is a really great guide that Greg Houseil put together. That's a technical guide for seed collecting, and what it shows is um, timing of when certain species are blooming and ready to harvest. So it's it's great. It's really comprehensive, and we'll link to that on the website as well. Megan's used it. I've been sending I it to her. I have used it. I love that guide. Now, the thing you have to keep in mind, that guide was made for Iowa and not, you know, so if you're talking about counties that are very close to the border, 
southern Minnesota, you know, northern Iowa, it's going to be very close. As you move north in Minnesota, as you all know, it gets snowier and colder and the season gets shorter. So you still are going to have, there's no substitute for a site visit. You That's a good, yeah. yeah, you're going to have to shift it according to your own climate conditions that you're working under. Well, and even this year, we're about, all summer long, we've been about three weeks behind because of this the, is just such a weird, such a weird spring that we had. Yeah, it's a very weird spring. Delayed, so, and then it got hot really quick, like with mm-hmm. almost no spring temperatures, then it decided to get cold again. It, it's just been very strange. So every year is a little bit different right. too, but it's a, it's a great guide in terms of getting you on track. If you're like, am I thinking about June, August? Right, what are we looking at? What here? are we looking at? So, um, so that's a really great handy dandy guide you can you can keep on your um, your desktop there. So that that about wraps it up for our science. Hey Megan. Yeah, Jeff. Take a hike. I think I will. So, okay, this is the part of our podcast where we are going to highlight some of your amazing public lands, and we get to go through and think about um, when you're going to visit some prairies. And so we talked to our fabulous consultant, Corey Netlin, who's one of our area wildlife managers up in the, um, I always want to say up in the Spicer area. I guess he is up in the Spicer yeah. area. Wilmer. We, we keep him hidden, tucked away in Candy, Ohio County. <laughs> like a gem, though. He's like a hidden gem. <laughs> Corey Netlin, he's a hidden gem. He is, but he hooked us up today, and he gave us some amazing, pub, uh, some of your amazing public lands again, and these are all ones that have a seed sourcing connection. So, Jess, walk us through some of these. So, um, the, these first two are, are not ones that Megan and I have been to, but they sound real cool. I want to go. I do too. After talking to Corey. So the first is, and these are in Pope and Candy, Ohio counties. The first one is Oleander Wildlife Management Area. It's got a whole bunch of different things on it. It's got some native, um, native prairie. It's got some non-native prairie grass, some remnants, uh, old farm grove with an adjacent woody cover planting. And so Corey talks about these as, islands of mature hardwood species, including bur oak, basswood, maple, hackberry, and walnut. I love Is that it. like your Corey voice? Like when you... No, started, I can't. Like, I can't I do know. a Corey. It was good. You did a different voice there where you're like, bur oak, <laughs> basswood. It must be your tree voice. Like when you talk about trees. I just thought it seemed very eloquent. So, <laughs> um... So what Corey was telling us is that some of these uh, old brome fields that are on the property, he's going to seed them down with some seed that's been collected through this um, through this seed collective, where different partners are sharing and um, seed. they're working together. Yeah. To, to mix seed. Yeah. And then share. It. I like. That. And he's doing some really cool stuff in partnership again with um, Nature Conservancy and others to you know, look at ways to start incorporating some of these early season forbs. So that's really exciting up and coming stuff. So if you want to visit this oleander, maybe do it now while it's still brome and then come back in a couple of years and see what, see what happens after he seeds that brome field down. So that's the first one. Across the street is the Randall uh, waterfowl production area. And this is a U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service uh, site. And Corey was telling us that they've been doing grazing with goats for the sumac 
And it's just always great to see goats out on the prairie. I know. So. I always want to name them things like Honeysuckle Assassin and Sumac Assassin. I couldn't think <laughs> of a name that rhymed with <laughs> No, I couldn't think of anything. I was like, Sumac Serial Killer. I don't know. But like some something, because they're out there doing great conservation work. Goats they will are. eat anything. They are, which is a blessing and a curse, yes, right? Yes, it's a blessing. So and a curse. I think goats are a great management tool, but they we gotta watch them. <laughs> you have to watch them. <laughs> so we gotta make sure they don't get out of control. So um, the third one, which is just up the road north on 104, about 10 minutes, not too far over into Pope County, is Ordway Prairie, which and it's a, it's oh, a patchwork. It's beautiful. Of prairies, it's owned by the Nature Conservancy. So it's an Ordway Prairie Preserve Nature Conservancy property. And um, it, it's just absolutely beautiful. The vistas are wonderful. Got to watch out for the poison ivy a little bit. You do. It's on the hillsides there. It'll, um, it'll get you. It's taller than me. It's Megan height. It's not ideal. But we do a plant identification training. And every couple years, we go back to Ordway. And I would say it's one of our most attended sessions. It could be because of the fabulous land manager who comes. Matt Gravy comes and he always does a great job talking about the work that they're doing at Ordway, but I think it's, I think it might not be Matt. I think it might just be how awesome Ordway is. Maybe probably it's both. a combination. It's both. Yeah. It's probably both. So part of the, just to give you a visual, part of the reason I love this Glacial Lakes area is these rolling glacially deposited hills are so cool. And you've got, you've got the glacial, dry glacial hilltops and then the swales, and it just makes for a beautiful vista. Well, and this is another one where you can walk down the hillside and you are walking through different plant communities as you go because you're going, like you said, from dry to music to wet in some cases. And you can feel that transition. And it's just really neat to walk in some of the low ground and then there's even wetlands, little pocket wetlands there. And then you pop back up and you're in a dry sandy area. It's just, I don't know, it's nature's paintbrush at work in its Beautiful. finest finest hour yeah all year long too you can go there in the spring got the blue-eyed grass later you got some phlox blooming it's just beautiful it is all beautiful. year long all year long very beautiful so don't forget you can check out all these public lands on the dnr's recreation compass you can find the nature conservancy ordway prairie on the nature conservancy site you just type in ordway prairie and they'll tell you how to get there more about the site the history and why the conservancy is conserving it so that's how you can find access to all these amazing prairies. And we will catch you next week on the Prairie Pod where we are going to talk with the legend, the man, the conservationist, former bear biologist Dave Trauba, who's now the regional manager for the DNR's Southern Region Division of Fish and Wildlife. And he was the wildlife manager for a very, very long time. We won't say how long. That's a teaser for next episode at Laquaparl. And you're just going to learn a lot from Dave. We're going to learn a lot from Dave next week. I'm excited. I really want to find out how you how Dave pronounces Lacoparl. I know. We're going to solve the mystery next week on the Prairie Pod. See you later, Jess. Bye, Megan.